Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From the pages of The New Yorker, this is the weekly comment podcast. In Hong Kong on the March, Evan Osnos reports on how the mass demonstrations are in bold defiance of Chinese authority, but a crackdown could be incalculably costly. Just before Hong Kong returned to Chinese control in 1997, a team of behavioral scientists conducted a fascinating experiment. Ying Yi Hong and some colleagues recruited local college students and showed them a set of iconic images either from America, Mickey Mouse, a cowboy, or from China, the Monkey King, a dragon. Then they posed questions intended to elicit their values and beliefs. The results revealed that depending on which images were presented, the students readily switched between Chinese and Western worldviews. 22 years later, young people in Hong Kong described themselves overwhelmingly as Hong Kongers rather than Chinese. Their resentment of the Communist Party's growing involvement in their politics and culture has fueled the crisis that has consumed the territory this summer. Protests that began in June in response to a proposed extradition law have expanded into a broad-based movement with the slogan, Retake Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times. A city that prides itself on high-toned rule of law has become the backdrop for a grinding standoff between police in riot gear and young men and women in gas masks, goggles, and yellow helmets testing the resolve of one of the world's economic centers and the dexterity of China's president, Xi Jinping. A popular protest motto on banners and city walls evokes the stakes. If we burn, you burn with us. In Beijing, the Communist Party was at first largely silent about the unrest. But after protesters defaced the national insignia of China's liaison office on July 21st, Chinese media called them separatists and the movement a color revolution, poisonous terms in Chinese politics. Though Facebook and Twitter are banned on the mainland, the party launched a global social media campaign. In a tweet, China Central Television adapted Martin Niemöller's language to liken the protesters to Nazis. First, they hurled bricks. Other posts circulated conspiracy theories. A man in a photograph taken at a protest was labeled a CIA commander when, in fact, he worked for the New York Times. Last Monday, Twitter accused China of a coordinated state-backed operation, specifically attempting to sow political discord in Hong Kong. The site barred advertising by China's state media and dropped nearly a 1,000 accounts, some of which operated under the kind of fake, folksy persona used by Russian agents in the U.S. election in 2016. One Chinese account described its owner as a coupon-clipping, money-saving, low-key hustling supermom in Columbus, Ohio, who lives in the suburbs but is from the hood. Facebook and YouTube undertook a similar cull. By late August, the protests had evolved into the most sustained challenge to the Chinese Communist Party since the uprising in Tiananmen Square 30 years ago, an ominous distinction. In 1989, the party blamed the tumult on a cobble of foreign black hands before unleashing troops who killed hundreds, perhaps thousands, in and around the square. This summer, party officials once again blamed the unrest on black hands and warned Hong Kong's protesters not to play with fire 
or mistake restraint for weakness. To drive home the point, the People's Liberation Army garrison in Hong Kong, which rarely draws attention to itself, released a video in which troops performed riot control exercises. Just across a bridge on the mainland, the Shenzhen Bay Sports Center became the site of an encampment of military vehicles for the People's Armed Police, a paramilitary force. In a video posted by the People's Daily, an officer with a megaphone shouted in Cantonese, which is spoken in Hong Kong, Stop the violence, repent, and be saved. The turmoil on China's cosmopolitan coach is anathema to the instincts of China's 66-year-old president, both personally and politically. The son of a high-level revolutionary, Xi grew up near the party headquarters in Beijing. As a teenager, he lived through the chaos of the Cultural Revolution when young Red Guards forced him to wear a metal dunce cap and imprisoned his father. In the 90s, many of Xi's peers decamped to Hong Kong and elsewhere to make their fortunes, but Xi didn't join them. He never studied abroad or learned a foreign language. Instead, he made his way to the apex of a Leninist state. Since taking power in 2012, he has set about extinguishing all challenges to his authority. He has abolished term limits on his presidency, detained hundreds of activists and human rights lawyers, and overseen an anti-corruption purge that has punished 1.5 million members of the party. In Hong Kong, that rigidity has taken a toll. In the run-up to the crisis, Xi's proxies rejected even minimal demands, betting wrongly that the protesters would relent. Compromising now, the theory of hardline politics goes, would encourage further defiance, so the risk of a crackdown or a sudden wave of mass arrests is real. And yet, for Xi and his country, a massacre reminiscent of Tiananmen would be almost incalculably costly. He faces a wobbly economy at home, and Hong Kong is a mammoth financial hub, a currency exchange, and a source of foreign capital, with a stock market larger than London's. A crackdown would also undermine Xi's larger mission, to convince the world that China is a credible contender for global leadership in the age of Trump. On Xi's political calendar, he has upcoming reasons for avoiding a calamity, including a triumphant celebration set for October 1st to mark the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic, and in January, elections in Taiwan, another territory that China would like to see reunified. Bloodshed in Hong Kong would shatter the prospects, however slim, of healing the rift with Taiwan, which Xi has declared can't be passed on for generations. Unless protesters overwhelm Hong Kong's government or its courts, Xi may well stick to a less dramatic strategy, the gradual absorption of Hong Kong's autonomy. Beijing's liaison office in Hong Kong has steadily extended its reach. It provides financing to pro-China businesses, it owns more than half the territory's bookstores, and it backs friendly candidates for government posts. As that influence grows, the underlying conflict will be the buried seed of future troubles. Ying Yi Hong, now of the Chinese University in Hong Kong, continues to measure people's attitudes and did so during the protests. Her latest conclusion? Young Hong Kongers will have confidence in their local government if they see it as relatively autonomous, she said last week. However, if they think that the mainland government is interfering with the Hong Kong government, it plummets. For years, 
Hong Kongers have feared becoming, as a common saying goes, just another Chinese city. In Beijing, that description is regarded not as pejorative, but rather as the natural order of things. That was Hong Kong on the March by Evan Osnos from the New Yorker Magazine's issue for September 2, 2019, narrated by Christy Burns. Audible.com produces a weekly audio edition of The New Yorker. To subscribe or to download individual issues, we invite you to go to www.audible.com and enter New Yorker in the search box. To subscribe to the comment podcast, go to www.newyorker.com or to the New Yorker Room on the iTunes Store.